0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall.
1: Treating mildly infected patients, shortening their disease course, could logically be applied to sort of a prophylactic indication. But I'll mention that prophylaxis is probably the real issue as far as a drug supply standpoint.
2: Today, we're going to discuss two recent ideas and opinion pieces from the annals, one from March 30th and one from March 31st. The first is a rush to judgment, rapid reporting and dissemination of results and its consequences regarding the use of hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19. The second piece that was published the following day, the use of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine during the COVID-19 pandemic, What Every Clinician Should Know. Joining me on the podcast are two of the co-authors of the first paper, Dr. Jeffrey Sparks, who's a rheumatologist and assistant professor of medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's a clinical researcher funded by the National Institute of Health and the Rheumatology Research Foundation. His academic interests are related to epidemiology and the outcomes of rheumatoid arthritis, and he's a founding member of the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance. Dr. Al Kim is an author on both of these papers. He's a rheumatologist and assistant professor of medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. He's the founder and co-director of their lupus clinic. He runs a research program that includes both clinical and translational approaches to better understand how to complement activation products can be used as new biomarkers in lupus and the biological impacts of these products on the immune system. In this conversation, we will discuss appropriate use of chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine and uh, why there's so much fervor about these drugs. Well, Al and Jeff, thank you so much for uh, joining us on this podcast. Uh, This podcast is really important because of the concern that everyone has about chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. I actually know some people who obtained a prescription for uh, chloroquine and filled it and are hoarding it. I also know a young woman who has lupus who, in order to get her chloroquine, had to drive an hour each way because there was no place locally that she could fill her prescription. I think that the fervor over chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine was so well handled in uh, your ideas and opinions piece And so why don't we start out by just reminding everybody what chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine are and why you would even consider using this for COVID-19.
0: So the antimalarials, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have been recognized to be effective in rheumatic diseases. It has some anti-inflammatory properties. It may also blunt responses to inflammatory stimuli such as nucleic acids in immune cells. So it's been... Effective for uh, rheumatic diseases such as rheumatoid arthritis and lupus uh, for quite some time, and it's been part of our arsenal for a few decades as a result. There have been numerous in vitro studies also looking at the ability of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine to blunt viral infectivity, and this is largely due to uh, one of the mechanisms of action that we know hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine has is that it prevents the acidification of endosomes so that they uh, don't become lysosomes. So many viruses, uh, such as some alpha viruses like chikungunya, ultra viruses like HIV, flaviviruses such as dengue virus, and also a wide variety of coronaviruses, all need to uh, establish uh, infection within endosomes and requires the acidification of the endosome in order to generate the infectivity with the, of a cell. So. In vitro, there's been numerous data for all the viruses I've listed before to attenuate viral infectivity by adding chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. The translation to humans, though, in terms of as a therapeutic or as a prophylactic against viral infections has been less successful. Uh, So there have been some data in HIV where it may be successful, uh, some data that's not been successful. As a result, it's not part of the routine arsenal. Uh, There was a very nicely done randomized uh, controlled trial uh, for influenza prophylaxis, where um, antimalarials were shown not to be able to attenuate infection rates amongst people. Despite this past history, there has been enthusiasm with this current COVID-19 pandemic because of uh, pretty good in vitro data demonstrating that at least with coronaviruses, it can attenuate infectivity.
2: You mentioned its use in rheumatic diseases. Do you have a rough idea of the numbers of people who have been taking chloroquine prior to the COVID-19 infection?
1: As rheumatologists, certainly we're, prior to the COVID outbreak, we were certainly the main prescribers of antimalarials. Certainly the main antimalarial we use is hydroxychloroquine. Some patients we've Tried other antimalarials such as chloroquine or quinacrine, a few other derivatives, but the vast majority of patients are on hydroxychloroquine. You know, this is FDA approved for malaria as well as rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Now there's much better antimalarials, so it's not really used for that indication much, as far as I'm aware, at least uh, in the U.S. As far as numbers of patients, uh, it's a little hard to get a grasp on that. But certainly, we feel that hydroxychloroquine and antimalarials are an essential medicine for lupus patients. Really, the recommendations are that all patients with lupus should be taking it as long as they don't have intolerability or allergies to that. You know, Related to non-adherence and and some of those issues, uh, particularly retinal toxicity as well, we would think maybe 60 to 70 percent of patients with lupus are taking hydroxychloroquine. The other indication that it's FDA approved for is rheumatoid arthritis. Used differently in that disease, it's more of an add-on therapy to other disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. It's a bit hard to estimate exactly how many rheumatoid arthritis patients are on it, I would uh, assume, you know, in the 10 to 25 percent range. And really, the the clinical indications for hydroxychloroquine are really to improve inflammatory rash as well as inflammatory arthritis. So, it is used off-label for many other indications for rheumatic diseases that obviously have uh, many manifestations for that so we would consider it for discoid lupus for other forms of inflammatory arthritis such as sarcoidosis reactive arthritis as well as uh, undifferentiated connective tissue disease given that it seems to help with many types of indications Um, but uh, many of those latter conditions are off-label as far as total number of people who are on it we don't exactly know the numbers but we would uh, think it's certainly in the millions in the u.s and many more worldwide.
2: Okay, so now we we have a drug that's being used that's relatively inexpensive, very available, and all of a sudden we get several studies that suggest that it may help patients who are infected with COVID-19. When you look at those studies, Uh, And I've read a lot of this online, uh, on Twitter. I've tried to look at the studies. There seem to be not the perfect studies. So maybe the two of you can summarize what we know about the studies of chloroquine in patients with COVID-19, when it might be worthwhile using, and how you make that clinical decision.
1: I think Al alluded to some of the in vitro data that, you know, suggested perhaps efficacy. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily always translate into human studies. So I think we'll go through some of the human data. Probably the the first one that made the biggest splash was a uh, study out of investigators in in Marseille who did an open-label, non-randomized trial investigating hydroxychloroquine versus control. So there was no placebo. This was all open label. And again, we can go over uh, many of the flaws of the study. um, But I would mention first that, you know, it is an interesting and crucial time. And obviously, as rheumatologists and physicians, we certainly also yearn for a, a safe and effective treatment and preventive medication for COVID. And so I'll say up front that, you know, there certainly are hints of efficacy and in this environment, uh, you know, the short timeline for conducting and reporting trials, you know, ethical dilemma as far as what decisions you, you have to, to use to make. But anyways, this trial um, was, again, non-randomized. And I think that's probably the biggest thing to think about, because, as you know, most patients with mild COVID, they really do clear the virus by themselves. Within a week, the you know, viral titers start to really plummet. So in a non-randomized trial, you're not really sure that you've kind of lined people up in the same trajectory of their disease course. And if you're off even by a bit, you know, one arm that's kind of further into their disease course, closer to clearance, might systematically look like they're uh, improving, um, where it's really just related to that non-randomization. Some other issues with that trial are that, you know, they really looked at viral clearance at day six, and there were patients, and they seemed to only be in the hydroxychloroquine arm, who um, had very poor outcomes related to ICU transfer and even death. Not exactly clear why they weren't at that endpoint, but uh, they were really excluded, sort of post uh, baseline, if you will, in a way that sort of skewed the data to look more favorable for hydroxychloroquine by really eliminating some patients that had, you know, objective poor outcomes. Certainly, there's some other issues related to the control group who either weren't able or unwilling to take hydroxychloroquine and recruited from different centers based on study arm. Um, However, the data did certainly, um, you know, were interpreted by some as, as saying that hydroxychloroquine, perhaps with the addition of azithromycin, had some hints of efficacy. And I would say that in the normal day and age, this study would be sort of hypothesis generating and would lead to a more confirmatory trial. But certainly clinicians who are grappling with sick patients, they only have these data now. So I think a lot of extrapolation was used and uh, I'll, I'll take over some of the other studies.
0: Yeah, so the Marseille group, uh, Didier Raoult's group, had then a, a follow-up paper, which is still in pre-print status. In other words, has not been peer-reviewed. And so here, uh, they continued their follow-up of now 80 COVID-19 patients in a single arm, now single center study, A cohort study to be able to examine the efficacy of azithromycin and hydroxychloroquine and the outcomes they used here were not clinical also so they were looking at reduction of viral load using reverse transcriptase pcr you know to detect virus in the nasopharyngeal cavity and then they also did another outcome where they said uh, where they took those swabs and determined how much live virus was there um, using a culture system. The issue here, obviously, is that there's no control group. And as Jeff uh, appropriately pointed out, uh, what we, what they could be studying is just the natural course of COVID-19 disease in the context of some people who, who have gotten hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. In other words, the azithromycin-hydroxychloroquine combination may not actually play any role in here, we can't tell because there's no control group. And while both possibilities are available for interpretation, the study wasn't done to the point where we can decide one way or the other. And as a result, it is just merely hypothesis generating the other issue. And um, this is something that Jeff also brought up was that the outcome measures here of having like decreased viral load is a surrogate outcome. Ultimately, we want to know about survival or discharge from the hospital, we infer that reduced viral load will get you there. And while that intuitively makes sense, obviously in the world of research, these type of things need to be demonstrated. So again, when we start using our assumptions to be able to drive these type of conclusions, then we are, we'll open up our, the possibility of being wrong. And so this larger study, again, demonstrating that viral uh, loads go down is uncontrolled and may not be the best surrogate for a dis- disease activity or for a clearance of the, of the virus, and, or for um, a clinical outcomes associated with COVID-19.
1: And very briefly, there was another Chinese study. This was the first that I'm aware of, to report results from a truly randomized placebo-controlled trial. And they really recruited patients with COVID infection. Uh, for the most part, they were termed as mild infection. Again, looking at viral clearance as an outcome those who received placebo and hydroxychloroquine, both had very high rates of viral clearance at seven days after randomization. Um, and actually, numerically, the placebo group had slightly higher uh, proportion of patients who uh, cleared the virus. Uh, so this one was uh, a small study. It was negative, but it was randomized placebo-controlled. I think the criticisms for this study, again, is if if you're you're finding in uh, very mild infected cases who the vast majority are just going to clear by themselves, you know, maybe that's uh, not the right pop- patient population to study, given that vast majority of them might have uh, good outcomes regardless of any intervention.
0: And then there's one last uh, Chinese study that, um, has been making the rounds on Twitter from uh, Wuhan, where again this is a preprint. But this was a another double-blind, randomized, parallel-group trial where they used hydroxychloroquine for five days, and the control group here was defined as people who just got usual care. Um, these were adults, mostly with mild disease, and their outcome measures they looked at were one clinical. So there are two outcomes measures here: the fever and also cough reduction. And then also a radiologic outcome, which was recovery of on CT scan of, from pneumonia. So the issue with this study, while the study did show improvements in the clinical outcomes, and also showed improvements in CT scans that were weighed in favor of the treatment group, in other words, the hydroxychloroquine group for a lack of a better term this is more colloquial i felt like that the study was done sloppily the uh, original study that was submitted uh, pre, the pre-registration study actually had different primary outcomes than what was published they actually had used viral load and also t cell recovery time I feel like that in this case they also were measuring clinical outcomes and they found post hoc that we found better clinical outcomes in these patients receiving hydroxychloroquine. These type of things, these type of exploratory analyses um, render statistical analyses uh, challenging to interpret. There are other issues in terms of the type of statistics they have used uh, in terms of methodology that I think we will find uh, troublesome. And the other thing, too, is that they had uh, originally were, I think they were intending to register about 300 patients, but only 62, I believe, were reported. And so one could make the argument that this study is actually very underpowered. And because the sample size wasn't defined a priori in this particular paper, it, it makes it, again, look like that the outcomes they're looking at that are beneficial were realized post hoc. And as again, it renders the p-values essentially meaningless in my book. So these data are interesting because it does say, okay, there are better clinical outcomes in people who receive hydroxychloroquine, but there's so many methodologic and uh, errors within the study, it makes me a little worried whether or not the actual uh, study was done with the right rigor uh, in terms of how it was operated.
2: Two other questions, and then I think that uh, we'll have a good overall picture. Are there any Data that support prophylaxis uh, should. I know there are people who are taking chloroquine because they think it'll keep them from ever getting COVID nineteen.
1: Really, the only data that I'm currently aware of are in vitro data. Um, I think we've alluded to some of it already. You know, certainly from an extrapolation standpoint, you can. Think about how treating mildly infected patients and you know shortening their disease course could you know logically be applied to sort of a prophylactic indication. But I'll mention that you know prophylaxis is probably the real issue as far as a, a drug supply standpoint. If you think about the number of uh, infected patients with COVID, it pales in comparison to obviously the whole rest of the U.S. and the rest of the world who could be at risk. And certainly you could think about post-exposure prophylaxis to try to make a smaller group, but from a a supply standpoint, certainly this is going to be the biggest threat to hydroxychloroquine. The other thing from a population standpoint is, you know, relatively rare side effects such as conduction abnormalities, QT prolongation, severe rash. You know, on an individual basis, these are relatively uncommon, but if you're giving this drug to millions of patients, certainly some of those outcomes are going to occur. And so I think the the risk-benefit balance has to really be weighed carefully um the other thing i'll mention is that you know even though there's you know at least hints of efficacy for treatment of infection. It doesn't seem like this is, you know, the effect size is, is such that we would call this a cure. You know, it might shorten the course a bit, it might make you have a bit less severe of an outcome, and we don't really know whether that's true or not. But our our suspicion is, is that this is not going to necessarily be a cure. And when we're talking about giving this to the entire population, we really need to understand kind of what our expected benefit is as well as, you know, the expected risk. As far as I'm aware, there's no current data. However, there are really large, well-designed clinical trials ongoing now for both prophylaxis in general as well as post-exposure prophylaxis. So I actually think this is something that we will have the answer to. I don't know exactly when, but I think that really puts our patients with rheumatic diseases at risk now because this is what the biggest threat to the supply is. It's not really the patients that are sick in the hospital or the clinicians are using this empirically because that's a relatively small proportion of patients. And certainly it's it could be reasonable to do that on an individual basis. And it's not necessarily gonna deplete the entire stores of the drug.
2: I think I read this on Twitter within the last couple of days that there's a registry of patients who are actually on chloroquine uh, who did develop COVID-19. And so at least we know it's not a perfect prophylaxis. Uh, is that right, Al? I think, uh, you, I think you and I communicated about that.
0: Right. So, based off of the recent, most recent analysis that happened a couple of days ago, I think it was 60-some patients that have now been registered within the COVID-19 Rheumatology Global Alliance, that the registry now has uh, about 25% of confirmed COVID-19 patients had been taking hydroxychloroquine at the time of diagnosis. So, you know, again, we're going to be extrapolating well beyond this if we say that this has any impact on prophylactic use or even therapeutic application within COVID-19. But there are people who have been on hydroxychloroquine who've developed COVID-19.
2: So let me see if I can summarize and then then let the two of you uh, respond. This is what I think I heard. Chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, at least uh, in the lab, have some interesting features. There are uh, a number of not perfectly done studies that perhaps show uh, some promise, but not any magical properties. So in as we're recording early in April, once someone's in the hospital and uh, is, is sick enough to be in the hospital to try chloroquine in those patients uh, while we're waiting for the better studies to come out seems reasonable. But to give someone a prescription ahead of time in the outpatient setting to take if they feel sick or to just take to think that that's going to stop them from giving COVID-19, there don't seem to be any data to support that. So we need to be much more careful about how we use it because the unintended consequence of giving someone who uh, is otherwise healthy a prescription for chloroquine and having them fill it is it makes it more difficult for this young lady that I happen to know has lupus for her to get her medications?
0: I think that's very well stated.
2: Any other yeah. comments, Jeff?
0: Yeah,
1: I think obviously this is uh, you know a crisis situation, and as as a dermatologist, who are very familiar with hydroxychloroquine. Um, you know, we didn't envision being in this position, and you know, certainly I'm sure Al would echo this. These are medications that are essential drugs to patients where the efficacy and safety is really well delineated and, you know, FDA approvals, you know, decades of experience. And certainly we really hope that there is a prevention and a treatment for COVID-19. And if it's hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, we would certainly support those indications once they're really proven. But in the meantime, you know, we, we know that these drugs help our patients and, we really want to make sure that the patients who really need the drug can stay on it. And in a way, it's sort of, you know, if the decisions are made to, uh, you know, use this drug in different indications, we really need to prioritize patients uh, who, who we know benefit from this. Because I have my own anecdotes about patients having to call family in Florida, and they live in Massachusetts, getting it shipped, and I needed a patient that had needed a signed letter saying that this was actually for rheumatoid arthritis, you know, only 14-day prescriptions. And you can imagine that there's many patients with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis and other indications that don't have the means to be driving around town to try to find a pharmacy, don't have, you know, aren't as well-established with their provider to help troubleshoot as far as how to obtain the medication. So, you know, it really is a supply issue, just, you know, very similar to the situation related to PPE and ICU beds and, and ventilators. If this is going to be something that's super essential for COVID, we need to make sure that that all patients need it, particular patients with rheumatic diseases.
2: Well, I can't thank you uh, both enough for uh, writing your paper and sharing uh, your insights for uh All the physicians and non-physicians who uh, will be listening to this podcast. Thanks again. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. As you can tell from this conversation, chloroquine has some suggestion that it may help ameliorate the disease in some patients who are in the hospital with COVID-19. The data are yet not outstanding randomized controlled trials, and there's an unintended consequence of people buying chloroquine ahead of time just in case, and that is decreased accessibility for patients who really need it with lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and other rheumatological diseases. We hope this conversation will help you decide when it's worthwhile to consider using chloroquine and when writing a prescription for chloroquine seems premature. We appreciate you listening to our podcast. Thank you very much.
0: For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.